Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Yom Kippur sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. Who remembers what I spoke about last year? Should we talk about what to eat again? (laughs) I won't talk about what to eat. But I might make a glancing reference about when to eat. But for now, let's talk about suffering a little bit. Suffering is brutal. That's obvious. And no good person would wish it even on an enemy. But all suffering? I'm not so sure about all suffering. It turns out that psychologists and neuroscientists mostly agree that not all suffering is equal. Not even the same amount of empirical pain is equal. It depends on the circumstances. Imagine you're on a long haul flight. The person next to you falls asleep, leaning on your arm. And for hours, you're in pain as your arm cramps, as blood flow is stemmed, and you second-guess yourself as to how rude it would be to poke that person up in order to free your limb. Now, quantify that pain and suffering in your head. Almost give it a number. And transfer that same amount to a different situation. You're on a long-haul flight with your infant child. You would do anything to get her to sleep. You rock her in the crook of your arm, back and forth, back and forth for hours. And eventually she's asleep. You wouldn't dare move a muscle. You would like to request that everyone on the plane stay in their seats and not breathe so as not to change the situation. And as the minutes go by, the ache in your arm increases. The physical part of it is actually discomfort, a little bit of minor suffering. But emotionally, you are aglow. You got your kid to sleep. She will be in such a better mood when you land. You are the parent of the year, or at least the parent of the flight. It turns out that our experience of pain and suffering has much to do with whether it was imposed upon us, that's terrible, or whether we've chosen it, that can be noble. And from an anthropological look at human beings, we can not only tolerate some minor, temporary, chosen suffering, we might actually need it. While we are organisms who want and we crave and we desire, from an evolutionary perspective, we thrive in lack. We thrive in resisting cravings and in stemming some desires. Dr. Mark Matson, he's a neuroscientist at Johns Hopkins and at the National Institute on Aging, he wrote, if you think evolutionarily, predators in the wild fight for prey while in the fasting state and are better at recovering from inevitable injuries. And the human counterpart, people who evolved in feast or famine environments, they simply would not have survived and evolved 
unless they were somehow protected by the fasting. He goes on to say that our human ancestors did not consume three regularly spaced large meals plus snacks every day. Most, if not all, of our organ systems on the cellular level respond to intermittent lack in ways that enable the organism and the cells to tolerate and then overcome the challenge and return to normal. This is biology, and it's eye-opening, both practically and metaphorically. Living with lack and experiencing temporary Chosen suffering can be good for us in many ways. Now, I'm not romanticizing, God forbid, chronic hunger, nor a life of asceticism. But the notion of choosing frequently within a greater context of getting most of our needs met, choosing to go without, to forego, to suffer a little bit, that speaks to me. Choosing to divert urges and to intentionally experience even a little hunger without feeding it instantly to help your cells rebound as they are evolutionarily trained to do, that might make life both longer and better. Now, Judaism, of course, has plenty of experience with suffering, hence one of the most important words in our entire tradition, oi. We're good at it. But also, our tradition has a lot to say about suffering, including suffering that you choose. In the Talmud and Tractate Brachot, the rabbis do some complicated wordplay that I'm going to skip over, but in order to create an association between a brit, a covenant of salt, melach, and a brit or covenant of yisurin, suffering. And the Talmud states, just as a little bit of salt brings out the flavor of the meat, or the Satan last year. So too, a little bit of suffering can actually sweeten life and make it taste better. Now, the rabbis didn't know neuroscience. They had no idea what a cell was. They weren't speaking of evolution or of how the mitochondria in your cells thrive when they're not fed all the time. Nor were they talking about suffering that wallops you, unbidden. They were saying that we intentionally salt the beef in order to bring out its taste, and so too we should intentionally salt our lives. Go without some sweetness. Live proactively with some want, some lack. Life might be sweeter as a result. I want to be clear. Taken to an extreme, this is dangerous. And we are living in an era in which self-harm has proliferated. There's a lot of stress out there. And I want to make it clear, in case it was not already, that nothing in Jewish wisdom or medical wisdom suggests or even permits egregious self-harm or extended living without. In fact, the Russianer Rebbe, Rabbi Yisrael Friedman, who was a Hasidic sage in Ukraine and in Austria in the early 19th century, he made such a comment specifically on the Talmudic text that I mentioned before, too much salt, he reminds us, ruins meat. And too much suffering can ruin a person. But a little bit, chosen, calculated, limited, for a noble purpose, that kind of elected discomfort can feel good to us and can actually be good for us. What would our lives look like 
if we didn't just attempt to avoid all suffering or just endure it when it came to us, but if we beckoned it a bit to enjoy the pain of the child sleeping in our arm or the relief in cryotherapy, which is not itself comfortable in the moment, or the pounding the masseuse does on our aching muscles. It is weird that the massage feels better the more that it hurts. It felt so amazing, I did it twice. These are the words that opened a Facebook post of a colleague of mine in January. What was he writing about? A polar plunge, diving into frigid waters in January on the East Coast. He continued, I thought of my ancestors in the old country who would break through the ice to immerse themselves in a mikvah, and Native Americans who bathed themselves and their babies in rivers and lakes every day of the year. You know, many studies have shown how cold plunges that are fantastically uncomfortable in the moment have many benefits. Even occasional and short plunges in very cold water have been shown in study after study to ameliorate bouts of depression, brain health, pain management, longevity, athletic performance, immune health, and mood. All of these seems to, seem to benefit from occasional exposure to profound discomfort. This type of chosen manageable pain and discomfort has a name in English. It's called hormetic stress, hormetic stress. One paper in the journal Aging Research Reviews said it this way, underexposure to stress could leave your body unchallenged, while overexposure could lead to health problems. Hormetic stress is the sweet spot where stress could be beneficial. A little bit of good hormetic stress helps mitigate the toxic effects of all the bad stress, all the stuff you don't choose and that you wish would just go away. Now the word, the word itself, hormetic, from the noun hormesis is fascinating. It comes from the same Greek root that produces the word hormone. What is a hormone? It's a catalyst. It makes something move. A hormone gets things unstuck. Hormesis in Greek means rapid motion or eagerness. When we proactively and enthusiastically choose certain stressors, certain true discomforts, we can awaken our bodies and we can awaken our minds and our spirits. Now, I know that this notion is counterintuitive. Isn't it better always to have plenty rather than lack? We want more of everything, more access, more food in our cabinets, more bandwidth, more screens, more streaming subscriptions, more Marriott points, more Delta status, more words in the sermon. Okay, you got it. <laughs> more, more, more. I think some of that more is making us more unhappy more of being in a mode of wanting and needing more, more envious, more exhausted on the race to nowhere. Maybe we need to start speaking the truth of less. Less stuff, sure, we know where it's going eventually, but also a little less pleasure, less instant gratification, 
and more chosen hormetic suffering. My dear friend and colleague, Rabbi Ed Feinstein, who's probably spinning out a delightful sermon this very moment about 10 miles north at VBS, he wrote a wonderful story that's based on a rabbinic midrash that explores the inner mind of the life of Adam and Eve. He imagines this young couple after expulsion from paradise and after years of working together under duress in that little pocket east of Eden, he imagines them exploring the world. They had learned to till the soil. No one had taught them. They had invented child rearing, and we know how hard their kids were. And now it was time to take in the wider beauty of God's world. They took a journey. They stood on great mountains. They walked amid grand forests. They trekked vast deserts, and they traversed the magnificent sea. And one day they happened upon a place that looked familiar, but they couldn't place it. An angel guarding the entrance suddenly disappeared. And then they heard God's voice, which they had not heard since they had been sent out from the place to which they had now accidentally returned, the Garden of Eden. God said to them, my children, you have wandered, you have suffered, you have toiled. Your punishment is complete. Come back home to this garden. Adam and Eve, Eve hesitated. They had grown shrewd and even a little suspicious over the years. Eve asked, can I talk to your supervisor? <laughs> and God was like, I don't have a supervisor, I'm God. And they asked, you know, it's been so long. Remind us, what is this garden even like? God replied, it is majestic. It's free of pain and loss and want and even work. It's a perfect paradise. Adam and Eve considered God's response and beautiful invitation. It seemed pretty tempting. No struggle, no pain, no suffering, an endless life of ease. And then Adam turned to look at Eve, his wife. He looked into the face of the woman with whom he had struggled to make a life, to take bread from the earth, to raise children, to build a home. He read in the lines of her face all the tragedies they'd overcome. He saw in her eyes both the laughter they had shared and many, many tears. And Eve looked into Adam's face. She saw all the moments that formed their lives, jubilant celebration, yes, but also unbearable pain. She remembered the moments of life-changing crisis of when they chose not the easy path, but the worthy path together. She remembered the flat tires and the Wi-Fi down and combing out the headlights. And as all their shared memories came back to her, she took Adam's hand in hers. Looking into his wife's eyes, Adam shook his head, and they both responded to God's invitation to paradise with the words, no thank you. And Adam and Eve turned their backs on God's perfections and walked home. We live in that home to which Adam and Eve chose to return. We are meant to. It's our only true reality. And to wish otherwise is to be deluded and to even aim for a suffering-free life might actually lead to more travail, not less. 
Sometimes it is right within limits in the context of and towards an otherwise healthy and balanced life to walk towards hormetic suffering, to choose it temporarily, to embrace the pain on the path towards meaning and nobility. Rabbi Yehuda Alter Leib, also known as the Sfat Emet, who was one of the Rebbe's of the Gera Hasidic dynasty outside Warsaw, he compares all suffering to birth pangs. Within the very suffering lies the possibility of rebirth and renewal. Now, part of this insight was autobiographical. He suffered mightily in his life, particularly as a child, when he lived with true deprivation on a level that most of us cannot really fathom. And even through his suffering, he drew wisdom and strength and resilience. But I believe his insight applies forward, not just backward. It's not just how to squeeze sweet lemonade out of the sour lemons that were dumped on you, but how to know which sour lemons, which moments of lack, which non-fulfillment of our urges, which intentional discomfort, which mighty challenges are the very ones we should choose to live better and perhaps even to live longer. A rabbi who has one of the great names ever in the Mishnah, his name was Ben Hehei, you don't hear that name mentioned a lot at Briss's, teaches us in Perkea Vot, Lefum Tsara Agra. Literally, in the Aramaic, it means that the reward is directly related to the labor, the suffering. This is the Talmud's version of no pain, no gain. That slogan, no pain, no gain, appears in many gyms around the world, helping people to be bodybuilders. But to the rabbis, this notion was helping someone be a soul builder, a life builder. And in his commentary on the Mishnah, the Rambam, Maimonides, the great 12th century sage, applies this idea to study and to Torah study in particular. Now, he overdoes it a bit, but he's onto something. He wrote, only that which you study with exertion and labor and fear from the teacher will actually endure. Reading of enjoyment, he says, and leisure has no endurance to it, and so no point in it. Now, I like reading for pleasure, and I imagine many of you do as well. And it definitely means something different in our culture than it did in 12th century Spain and Morocco. But I take the Rambam to heart because it is indeed the very study that one does with travail, with effort, that seems nearly intolerable in the moment, with self-sacrifice. Those are the studies that earn us degrees and open up doors to life and fill us with wisdom that can enhance life. Sometimes it is right to choose suffering hormetically. We confront these potentially hormetic choices all the time in life. Parents choose hardship the moment they choose to be parents. No single choice promises more hormetic suffering <laughs> than the most elemental and noble one most of us make in life. And so before the next night of no sleep, the next time preparing to help your child with a painful social situation or their own sense of overwhelm, as we tense up and we worry about the toll it takes on us to be that present and that giving to our child, remember the Gera Rebbe. Some chosen sufferings are sublime. And every bonded relationship with a spouse, a partner, a parent, a dear friend, with a rabbi, 
They're all going to come with pain. We would like them to be perfect, but perfection is illusory and dangerous even to hope for. So the next time some upcoming suffering or some living without or some emotional pain is looming in such a bond, how different would it be for you emotionally if you chose it, rushed towards it, plunged into those icy waters, searching for what might be awakened within them? During my truly focused attempt to learn to play guitar five years ago, my fingers became sore and calloused. The pain was real, and I got in the way of all sorts of simple things, such as buttoning buttons and opening mail. And at the attempt itself to learn, I failed miserably. But I would choose that pain and that path again and again each time. It was the only possible way through. Every next hobby or skill or stage of relationship or learning of a new Jewish ritual that you take on, every new social encounter, every new professional task, and every new deep and honest engagement with yourself that you confront will come with some pain and suffering. Embrace it. Intermittent fasting and suffering is not just about food. It's about the trajectory towards growth and health and well-being. One of my dear colleagues tells the story of how his brother, who was a passionate ice skater, taught his own kids how to skate. He would say, you're going to skate towards me, and I'm going to push you down. They were three or four years old at the time. And he was training them to skate towards what they knew would hurt, just a little bit. They would approach. He would bop them down onto the ice. And as they struggled and learned how to get up, he would remind them, you cannot skate unless you are not afraid to fall. This is the way of the world. Limited, chosen suffering, such as the ache in your body post-vaccine, knowing that your antibodies are being created, such as the underappreciated and elusive power of delayed gratification, which was very notably borne out in a famous study in the 1960s called the Marshmallow Test, created by psychologist Walter Mischel at Stanford. If you're not familiar with it, in the original test, Mischel's team would present a child with a marshmallow and tell her that she could either eat the one treat right now or wait in the room alone for several minutes until the researcher came back a second time, at which point she could have two marshmallows. The promised treats were always visible. And the child knew that all she had to do to stop the agonizing wait was to ring a bell, call the experimenter back, although in that case, she would not get the second treat. After incredible study longitudinal over years and decades, it turns out that it was proven that the longer a child delayed gratification, the longer she was able to wait, the better she would fare later in life at numerous measures of what we would now call executive functioning. She would perform better academically. She would earn a greater living. She would be healthier and happier on several metrics. She would also be more likely to avoid a series of negative outcomes, including jail time and drug abuse, a temporary intermittent fast, a chosen suffering hardwired into the mind, leading to lives lived better. 
Now, I can't believe I've gotten this far into the sermon on this day and not mentioned this day. Modern Yom Kippur has lots of rules and lots of prayers and lots of pages to call. In the Torah, it was very simple. The people of Israel were given exactly one commandment, one phrase on this 10th day of Tishrei. For this day of atonement, all the Torah said was, Ta'anu et nafshuteichem, afflict yourselves. In modern Hebrew, some of you know that nefesh means soul or spirit. But in biblical Hebrew, it meant flesh and body. And both of those work in the translation. Because the work we are asked to do today is done through restraint and fasting more than intermittently. And from holding back. And from a bit of suffering. And more than a little discomfort to body and to soul. As we listen to hunger pangs, as we investigate the emptiness in our lives that can only be filled with tshuva, with repentance, with working hard to try to be better. Today, perhaps more than on all other days, but as an example for all those other days, we actually choose suffering. And I'd like to think that we are better for it. As my dear friend Rabbi David Ingber said, deprivation is what builds the ego. There is no birth of the ego without absence and lack. I want to end with what I consider to be a gorgeous poem by the American poet Rosemary Watola Tromer. It's called The Way It Is. The Way It Is. And it begins like this. Over and over, we break open, we break and we break and we open. For a while, we try to fix the vessel as if to be broken is bad, as if to be bro broken is not also perfect, as if to be open is not the path towards joy. Her title, The Way It Is, is so apt as much as we may struggle with this being the way life is, this is the way life is. And we are better and happier once we accept it and embrace it and occasionally rush towards the pain. She continues in the poem, the vase that's been shattered and cracked will never hold water. Eventually it will leak. And at some point, perhaps we decide that we're done with picking our flowers anyway and no longer need a place to contain them. We just watch them grow, just as wildflowers do, unfenced, unmanaged, blossoming only when they're ready, and my God, how beautiful they are amidst the mounting pile of shards. I wanna ask that we break some vases this year. Embrace fasts of all different types, for within those hungers, is well-being. Find your polar plunges. Choose your hermetic suffering. In other words, live. For this is the way life is. And one such painful but ultimately nourishing plunge is into memory, into recalling the lives and the deaths of those closest to us. What is Yisker if not a chosen temporary fast from the joy of the day? 
Yisker is hormetic suffering at its most exquisite. So let us plunge together, linger, but not wallow, hurt and remember and cry in order to rise up again and laugh and live. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.